Cindy, do you have any uh, last words you want to leave our listeners with today? I actually want to read Sahara's comment, which is you did that, Brittany. So I want to give credit to Brittany for pulling this off. I love what you're doing. I love the awareness that you're bringing um, to this category. Mark my words, this will be one of the areas of the most explosive growth. So for all of you out there who are feeling like you're running into brick walls and everything else, our day is here the money is going to open up in this category. The conversation has shifted remarkably since the, since I got the product approved to now. I can tell you how much the conversation has shifted and you guys are on the cusp of something really spectacular. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and today we have a special episode. I interviewed Cindy Ecker in April of 2020 during a virtual event where 500 fem fans listened in. I wonder how many of you were one of those early day fem fans. In this interview, Cindy discusses her journey leading Sprout Pharmaceuticals to a $1 billion exit. So far, women's health has seen $6 billion exits, or as they're lovingly called, unicorns. Cindy also speaks to us about how being underestimated as a female executive could actually be your superpower. Now, remember, this was recorded when I was only a few interviews under my belt. So just as I have grown as a host, you have all grown in your businesses, your schooling, your lives. Where were you in April 2020? And where did you think you'd be today? Take Cindy's inspirational message to reflect on where you are today and where you want to be in two years from now. Enjoy the episode. Now, the moment you've all been waiting for. Cindy Eckert, a self-made expert entrepreneur and local advocate for women, Cindy Eckert defies convention in her industry, in her companies, and in her outcomes. After selling her last company for $1 billion, her work today in the pink ceiling continues to break barriers by investing in and mentoring other women to get her same outcomes. The pink incubator, oh, the pinkubator, the pinkubator, <laughs> one word, companies produce disruptive first and catalyze social conversations in women's health. They have been awarded Time Best Invention, Forbes 30 Under 30, Best Company World Changing Ideas to name a few and they keep coming. Cindy is on a mission to make women really rich. <laughs> you may have seen her on popular podcasts like Tim Ferriss and national magazines like Vogue and Forbes, all of those. You cannot miss her. Everything she touches turns pink. But rather than me keep talking about her, we have this really badass promo reel that I am gonna show everybody. I am joined by Sprout Pharmaceuticals Chief Executive. Cindy Eckert. So join me and welcome Cindy Eckert. I've been in the field of sexual medicine for some time. I built a company with one of the male drugs, and I really was watching people sort of walk away from innovation here. 
the FDA finally giving the green light to the first prescription medication for women's libido. The Food and Drug Administration has approved the so-called little pink pill. The FDA is finally giving the go-ahead to the first prescription medication for women's sexual dysfunction. There are 25 drugs approved for some form of male sexual dysfunction, but still a great big zero for the most common form of female sexual dysfunction. It was an exciting time to jump into the female side and address an unmet need. It's a game changer uh, for us, to be sure, and I think a game changer, quite frankly, in female sexual health. Hopefully what happens now is you've broken through, research, money comes into that space, and women ultimately have a variety of treatment options as well. of Sprout Pharmaceuticals, which has just been acquired, announced yesterday by Valiant for a billion dollars. Valiant bought the company for a billion dollars. It has been a delight to now have others come to me with their ideas and help them navigate the process of getting it to the next level. We're some cross between an incubator and a VC. Um, our team rolls up their sleeves and works alongside companies that are breaking through for women. Damn, that was awesome. <laughs> that was really fun. <laughs> That's the fun, like, glam when I get to be on. And now you guys just see me at home, casual. So this is going to oh. be fun. I can't wait to answer these questions. So awesome. Well, um, if people don't already know who you are, they can just Google you. That promo reel really told us about your background. So I actually would love to just jump into the meat of okay. today. So, okay. you know, um, the topic of this event is overcoming obstacles and the power of being underestimated. And so why is being <laughs> underestimated a superpower? How, how can that be? Oh, I will tell you, there's real delight because underestimation is an invitation to surprise people. And here's what I think it does for all of us. As soon as you walk into the room and you're not taken seriously, you're overlooked, you're underestimated, what I think that ignites within is a certain courage and determination to prove them wrong. Mm. And if I think about, you know, my entire career, um, that underestimation has been a fuel, if you will, for me to go out and prove it. And there's been real fun as I've gamified it a little bit to, they don't see it coming, but they absolutely know when you arrive. Yeah. Who is they? Who often underestimated you? Oh, I mean, listen, if you can imagine me dressed in pink, if you know, if you had seen that promo, if you hadn't seen any visual on the promo reel, or if I was walking onto a stage and somebody said, you know, I want to introduce you to a pharmaceutical CEO. Uh, they built two companies and sold their last business for a billion dollars. If I walked on stage, the whole audience would go, what? Wait, you don't fit the part. You don't look the part. Less than 3% of healthcare companies are run by women. Um, and, you know, I'm in blazing hot pink showing up uh, on Sand Hill Road in Silicon Valley trying to raise money to come out with the, quote, female Viagra, as the media calls it. I got laughed out of those rooms. And what was really happening was an underestimation. I didn't fit in their mind the profile. My, my product didn't fit you know, what they imagined. Uh, I didn't fit who they imagined to lead that. And so I think, you know, that has been pervasive throughout my career, but also in many ways, a secret weapon 
uh, for my own motivation to get to where I have. Do you think that people still underestimate you today? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's part of the, I, I don't know. I, I, I probably get, um, maybe some people overestimate because <laughs> I'm still going to mess up and, and um, you know, step on mines and everything else. But I think that in, in some regard, it, the ability to cultivate that um, is a little bit of fun. I think a little bit of, you know, keeping people on their toes um, and not being able to see you coming is probably a skill that I honed, not because I set out by design to do that, but because that's really what happened. And so now it's become part of the playbook. Yeah. Have you ever underestimated yourself? Um, oh, I want to answer this one carefully because by no means would I want anybody to think like I haven't had, you know, self-doubt or fear or all of this. We or human. All of us have those. But I think that inherently, um, I've always had a, a bar for myself mm-hmm. um, that has been it has pushed me, if you will, right? Uh, so I can't afford to waste time underestimate. I got to overestimate what I can do, and then hold myself accountable to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say I talk a lot about this just as it relates to confidence, because we have such a discussion, particularly. Um, somehow, particularly with female founders, uh, we have this discussion about confidence. And I really would say, you know, confidence to me, as we portray it is often like moxie, you know, like, I feel like I got this and I walk in the room or whatever it may be. And that there's no way like my voice is shaking, my hands are trembling. Many of those times when I walk into that pitch, but what I have is competence. Mm. And I know that I know my stuff. I can be tested and go toe to toe all day long on the data. And I believe at the heart of that, I'm capable. And I think to the question of, you know, are you, did you ever underestimate yourself? I think provided you are sure in your own capability that even if you don't have the answer today, you will figure it out. Mm. Um, You can lose that. Um, You can lose ever underestimating yourself. Yeah. I, I actually get that a lot. Being a pitch coach for founders, they say, you know, oh, how are you so confident? You have no fear. And I'm like, my hands are still sweating. My hands are still shaking. I just have this inner fire that says, I know I can do this. I know I can do this, you know, but my body still has a parasympathetic response to stress. I still feel nervous, you know, (laughs) that's right. Yeah. Um, I love your style. Speaking about your style, walking around in stilettos and the hot pink. Um, when I when I had my last company, um, I actually had a branding advisor, and I actually would bring up your website and I'd say, "I oh. oh, her <laughs> smart, powerful, successful, uh-huh. and like, sexy." You know, like that's who I also want to okay. be. You know, <laughs> and um, when did you start to be unapologetically yourself? And uh, you know, was that always the case, or is that something you grew into? unapologetically pink, right? As I actually talk a lot about pink is a shift for me from underestimated to unapologetic. And, and I think that um, I've always loved pink. If you're actually challenged to find a, <laughs> a childhood picture of me when I'm not in pink. Uh, but you can imagine, like I, I started my career not with a startup. I had a corporate sort of career. I climbed the ladder. And then I thought, why am I creating value for everybody else when I should be doing it for myself? But the rule book was, you know, hey, like suit up, 
you know, put on a black suit, pull your hair back, don't wear makeup. And that's not who I am. Right. (laughs) And I just thought, well, that, that is not who I am. And in fact, what sort of confounded me is under the underpinning of that is that my femininity, my love of pink, which is stereotypical is a weakness when I absolutely saw it as a strength. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you're strongest when you enter the room authentically yourself. Um, And so I wear blazing hot pink because that's the conversation that we should be having. Uh, If somebody rejects that, if they have a notion that that somehow makes you weaker, like I have no time for it. And we're going to, we're going to talk about it (laughs) because you really do think about it in underestimation in stereotypes that would set up that you are not capable or whatever that is, you really have a choice to make. Your Mm -hmm. choice is either you're going to let that infiltrate your mindset and you're going to like pull back from it, Mm -hmm. or you're going to make a decision to lean right toward it because that's what should be addressed and you should really own it. So if you're you're my kind of crazy, you go right toward it. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Yeah. It reminds me a lot when I was fundraising for my company, I'd show up to you know, an investor meeting and they would ask me, um, oh, are you uh, setting up the PowerPoint for your CEO uh, and he's yeah. going to be here? And I'd say, it's me, I'm the yeah. CEO, you know? <laughs> and uh, so what I started doing was wearing a lab coat to the pitches uh, and yeah. any actual scientist would be like, why are you wearing a lab coat to a PowerPoint? Right. That's right. Not <laughs> but I would also always wear my red lipstick. So it was like this blend of like, it's me, but also like, check out my cape, check out my superwoman cape. I'm a doctor sit down, listen, I'm the one leader who knows what she's talking about. And so, you know, I love your lean in, but for me, it was also like, I had to play the game a little bit yeah. to even get to the presentation, to right. get to the business model part, you know? And so it was like this balance of like still being me, but also being like, I'll show you who I really am. I'm a doctor, you know? Yeah, yeah so, for um, sure. Well, yeah. I have to see what Leela's saying. She said, I've had many people ask me if I'm the secretary and she's the attorney. Yes. Yep, I get it. Huh? Yeah, that's when you got to sport with them a little bit uh, before you tell them who you really are there for the meeting. Because I I think that, you know, this question hasn't been asked, but Leela's comment made me think about it. There is a way um, to use humor. And I do think I've had to perfect that over time. And humor allows an opportunity for people who've maybe stepped in it to save face. Mm-hmm. And if you can go in and think their intention wasn't malicious, yeah. they're maybe not even conscious of the fact that they've sort of shown up with that underpinning of bias. If you can kind of sport a little bit and have a little bit of humor, they get an opportunity to save it. And then you get to move on on a very different footing with them because they know they're never going to challenge you in that way again. They're never going to make that mistake twice. And yeah. you probably saved, honestly, by handling it that way and not walking out, not saying it or being frustrated, you've probably saved the next woman that walks into the room. Yeah. Yeah, totally. At Femtech Focus, we know that a lot of people don't know the right words for female body parts and, or they think that that's already been solved for women. And we um, have a certain, you know, internal moment to instead of be angry or shame them for not knowing, be like, Oh, well, I am so excited to enlighten you. This is a fun opportunity to learn, you know, even though on the inside we die a little, you know, or like, as long as we can be approachable, like we'll be more influential for change. Yes, for sure. 
Let's talk about overcoming challenges in business. We're already kind of in it, right? But, um, and also I would love to tell you who these questions come from because we have international viewers. We have people from uh, Syria, Japan, Australia, London, like literally all over the world. So this one is from Vanessa at Drew University in New Jersey. When in a disagreement in business, what are tips for keeping your cool and supporting your views with confidence? You know, I think the most important thing is that you have to keep listening. So we tend to, um, you know, somebody's challenging, they're not hearing our point of view, they're stuck. We similarly can get stuck and mm-hmm. shut down. And I would say that uh, if you're in an, a disagreement, just actually take a beat, don't talk and let them talk because what you're doing in that moment is actually, you're probably restoring it from disagreement to a different kind of uh, tone in the room. And you're mm-hmm. actually getting, forgive me, but your ammunition to then talk, kind of bring them to your point of view yeah. because they're revealing to you what the, you know, what they're hung up on. And you probably have an opportunity to help them see your view provided you know what the points of disagreement are. So I think, you know, the keeping your cool is to find your uber calm. And the way we can get uber calm is actually if we just get quiet and we start listening and and they're telling you everything that you need to know to change their mind. I love it. This one's from Ashley at University of Houston. And a second person wrote the same question. This is Kaylin Rosenberg, who is a love architect. She's out of um, uh, Minnesota, Missouri. All right. The Texas lady right now. I'm like, I don't know all the M's, but um, how did you keep up? I would like to visit, but can't right now. Yeah. Like, yeah. Opportunity. I'd love to come see you all around the world and around the state. Yeah. Our next event, I'm coming to North Carolina, by the hey. way. Next event. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Yeah. Um, this, uh, how did you keep up your motivation when things weren't going as planned at your company? Um, two things. So one is, I designed, I designed a world in which I was surrounded by people that would keep me going. And I want to say that that's really intentional. And I know that, listen, when I started, there were three of us. Sometimes it's one of you. Um, but I knew my support network, even if they weren't literally on the mission with me, um, because there is such truth to if you need to find your way out of a bad day, you better be surrounded by positive people. Um, and you know, that that's, I think a big piece of it. The other thing for me, particularly when it came to Addie was constantly reminding myself of why I did it in the first place. Mm -hmm. And that was as simple as going to my inbox. I am so lucky that women have written me and to this day, write me every day saying things like, thank you for letting me know I'm not alone. Thank you for letting me know there's a name for this. I mean, you know, and, and revealing very personal details. And so if I ever got to a dark place, I reminded myself of the purpose of it by going to my inbox. Yeah. It's simple. You know, recently um, I've, you know, been telling a lot of people about Femtech Focus. We're a new organization and somebody on the phone, they were like, hey, I just want to like remind you that this is going to be really hard. And I just said, I've I've done a PhD in genetics. I started a a national, you know, DNA based dating app. Those things are exciting to me. 
not nearly as exciting to me as empowering women's health and wellness. Like if this is a hundred times harder, bring it on. Like I would love to get out of bed and do this challenge every day. Right. And so it's like picking the right challenge to do it. Absolutely. And having a good co-founder because yeah, uh, the universe is crazy. Like when you're down, hopefully your partner is the strong one that day, you know? Yeah. No, I think that's really, you know, we don't talk about that enough. Entrepreneurship is really lonely. It's really lovely. And so find somebody to do it with you. If you're starting from scratch, I encourage you, as opposed to really wanting to hold on to it as yours, um, find somebody. Because to your point, Brittany, on the days when you're ready to give up, they won't be, and that will help you. And if you're not, if you're on this alone, or somebody's joined us, find, again, that support network outside of it. Go to the co-working spaces, get on Eventbrite and figure out, be part of these sessions with Femtech Focus. This will keep you going. And it's really important to have that built. It's actually a question that I ask when people pitch me today. Mm -hmm. I look to see have they already designed, if you will, their network of support, because I know that's going to be a critical factor to getting them all the way to the finish line. That's right. That's right. Um, This actually isn't a submitted question, but as a a mentor in Houston, I hear this a lot. How, what do you suggest um, is the best way to find a co-founder? Yeah. Oh, um, I look, I'm about showing up in rooms and, and, and finding chemistry, which is perfect Mm -hmm. for Brittany. I really do believe that. I think you've got to, when you have an idea, go tell everybody. Mm -hmm. My advice is maybe the antithesis of what some other folks will say, which is don't tell anybody because they, oh my gosh, they might steal. People will not steal it. They don't, they're not enterprising enough. They're not going to put in the hard work that you've already dedicated to getting it to the point of, you know, moving it forward. And if it's that easy to do, it might not be a good idea. That's true. So tell people, and when you get in the rooms, you know, one person, it might not be that person, but they'll connect you with this person. I think it's really that simple. I don't think you can, um, you know, post it and think that the right people are going to show up at your doorstep. Mm -hmm. I think you're going to have to have laid the groundwork by getting some trusted sources and you're telling them and they're going to make recommendations to you. Yep. Right. yep. So just keep showing up y'all, whether it's in pink stilettos yep. <laughs> or all black or a lab coat, whatever, just keep oh, showing up. Relentless. Show your Wait, face. And that chemistry. Yes. <laughs> and the next Paramore product is going to be networking, right? Like a DNA for your <laughs> co-founder. Um, this is a good one. So this is from Kimberly at Baylor College of Medicine. Go BCM. Uh, Was there ever a moment where you were scared or had imposter syndrome? How did you handle it? Um, There are moments every day that I'm scared. Um, But I'm going to tell you, I reject the notion of imposter syndrome. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. I think that if you show up authentically you, you're not trying to play the part. You're not trying to meet somebody else's expectations you're wearing pink when they told you to wear a black pantsuit, um, you will never suffer it. And that's so important. I think that the suffering of imposter syndrome is when you are putting some pressure on yourself to appear different than you truly are. And it's such a uh, important piece. I think I shake it, you know, I shake off the fear um, and the scared by openly admitting that I am. Hmm. I'll give an example. If I go, I, I, and I talked to founders about this, who, you know, you're in the middle of the pitch, like, you know, you're at the big show and you're so nervous 
and you screw up. Like you can't find your words, you're tripping and stumbling, you lose your place. The best thing to do is to say, holy cow, you guys are freaking me out. Like the stakes are high here. I really want to nail this. Give me a minute. I'm going to shake it off. Yeah. And and just on the other side of the table, what I'll tell you is they're not judging that as a negative. They're seeing it as a positive of your authenticity of the fact that like, I want to go on the ride with this person because I like what you see is what you get. Yeah. That's so important. Yeah. And humility and authenticity is the kind of founder I want to work with, you know, and I have founders that are like, I know everything. I'm like, no, thank you. I I don't want to play with you. Thank you. (laughs) Don't be humble and smart. Pat Lencioni got that right uh, many years ago in his books. And he was talking about how you hire people, but similarly, how do you invest in people? How do you pick partners? Humble humble and smart. Mm -hmm. This is another Kimberly, but she is the founder of Tiger Lily. How did you turn challenges into opportunities? Um, you know, a, a challenge is an opportunity. I would tell you, I think that uh, if it's a challenge, the beauty is most people are running the other direction, which is their, your signal to run in um, because things that are challenging, very few will take on, which inherently makes them extraordinary opportunity uh, for the person willing to put in the blood, sweat, and tears to see it through. Yeah. So I, I really do think that um, every challenge you're faced with is really an opportunity to find the workaround. And it's the mark, um, you know, of you guys who are on here and listening, of anybody who's entrepreneurial, your, your magic is that you see possibility where other people see limitation. You yeah. see opportunity where other people see see challenges. Yeah. Do you think that this has to do with um, being optimistic versus pessimistic? Yeah, I do. I actually, I had a wonderful, and I encourage everybody uh, here, uh, there's a performance psychologist named Michael Gervais. And um, Michael Gervais and I did a live not that long ago. And he said, you know, scientifically, you can really train yourself to be an optimist. Hmm. You're not not born optimistic or pessimistic. Um, Really, there's a lot of sort of practice that can get you there. And I think you you better be optimistic as an entrepreneur because you're going to have some bad days and you're going to have every voice in your head yeah. telling you, every external voice coming at you, you don't have enough experience. You don't have the money to do it. You don't. Do, and if you can't be the optimist who says, yeah, like watch this, mm-hmm. you're in trouble. Yeah. You really do have to have that optimism. Yeah. I also say it in a little sprinkle of delusion. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> my kind of crazy. Like you got to have a little bit. You got to, if you're willing to take big swings and take big risks, guess what? You are not like most people. Yeah. Uh, very few people will be willing to take those kind of risks. I see. So I don't want to ruin your flow, but I see some questions coming in if I can. Ask. Oh yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so um, the story of securing your first angel I had, um, first of all, huge proponent. I'm an angel investor today. The pink ceiling is my money. Uh, I put my money where my mouth is. It's not a fund. Um, although I can introduce uh, people who come through my doors to all these other investors who bet. And, and luckily, I've made a lot of money. So um, I make them look at things that I'm interested in. But it was um, really a challenge because I didn't have anyone in my contacts, in my phone, um, who I thought could write me a check. And I didn't have a rich uncle. 
So I really decided that if I could get to, in my case, it was the former um, head of healthcare banking at the Carlisle Group. I knew that he had left. Um, I didn't know him. I knew no one who knew him. Um, but I decided if I could get in the room with him, mm-hmm. he's going to, even if he doesn't say yes to invest in me, he's going to help me set down the right path. Mm-hmm. And I got in the room with him. And then I said, introduce me to two of your friends. And then I got in the room with two of his friends. I said, introduce me to four of your friends. I got in the room with four and I said eight. And really that is truly how my angel group, and I raised a hundred million dollars from private investors, from wow. angels or family office, which was, again, not that I wouldn't have at the early days thought, you know, I'd hit the jackpot if I'd walked into Sand Hill Road and gotten a big check. Mm-hmm. They were laughing me out of their offices. And what is your curse? often becomes your blessing because my path was like this. And I had many moments in time um, where I think had traditional venture money been in, they would have said, we're out, like buy. Because I had, you know, angels in who were equally sort of emotionally invested in the mission, they hung with me. So it's a good plug uh, for angels. And I think the story is designing someone, a few people, who you want to get in the room with and through hell or high water, get in the room with them. And today I would argue you can do that. We are more connected than ever. People DM me all the time. I, I read my DMs, like people all are reading their own DMs and that is how it makes it happen. Yeah. One more before you go on, Bridget. Yeah, yeah. The process of building and selling your, and of selling and building your companies to sell it. Did you know you want, you'd want to exit? Um, I will tell you, I think that, So you always design in my mind with um, an end in mind for a company, like what might that look like? That's at the very beginning. And then you let it leave your mind because all you're doing, once you think this is a potential exit at some point, stop thinking about it and just start thinking about how am I creating value every single day? Mm Because if you create enough value, the suitors will come. And Mm -hmm. when I sold my first business, um, I had, I was not shopping it or anything else. I knew that at some point somebody would find it attractive, surely, but I focused none of my energy in that. I focused all of my energy in value creation and they came and knocked on my door. Um, and then I think with the, um, the second of, did you know you want to exit or selling it? I will tell you my one lesson along the, the way is write a good contract. And you get smarter as you go along. So from my first company to my second company, I wrote a better contract. Not that the first deal wasn't great. It actually, it was great. Um, but it was governed by uh, a best efforts clause, my downstream payment. So I'm getting to, let me back up. When I sold it, you know, it's often these structures are you get an upfront payment and then you participate in royalties and milestone payments on the back end. It's a great way to construct a deal because it's really win-win. You feel good that you're handing over your baby to somebody and you still have skin in the game of -hmm. some sort. So first business sold it, got mailbox money for years and royalties. My investors all loved that, but it was governed. Their efforts were governed by best efforts, which is legal boilerplate language. Where's Leela here? She knows that, you know, boilerplate language. And for me, first time I'm selling a company, I'm accepting that. Second time I sold my business, Sprout, um, I wrote really specific performance obligations. What did they, how much money did they have to spend on education? How many salespeople did they have calling on OBGYNs? 
And thank goodness I'd learned that lesson because when they weren't meeting those um, obligations, I had an opportunity to go and get the company back. Yeah. So I still have the billion, but I got it back and I kept the billion. So, <laughs> and now I use it to fund companies in the pink ceiling and, and yeah. launch out. Once again, my role model. <laughs> Love um, it. <laughs> I don't know, Dmash, you might know, but 35 million in your company, good for you. That's incredible. Yeah. All of these, that it's incredible to go out and, and get, but, but it does tell you money is there for great ideas. Yeah. Even if you today don't have anybody in your contact list who you think is going to write you a check, you can find your way to them. Yeah. And all you, you, you know, when I coach uh, founders, I'm always telling them, you just need a sponsor to be your yeah. lead. And your yeah. sponsor is somebody who believes in you yes. or believes in the industry you're working on. And so my first investor was Dr. Jack Gill. He's a legend in Houston and he, you know, runs a venture, uh, a small like angel venture fund here. And he's a professor at Rice and I took his class and then I TA'd it the next year. And at the end of that semester, he said, one day you're going to start a company. Let me know when you do, I'll be your first investor. And I was like, okay, because he had seen my work all semester long and he saw like my values and my work ethic. And so the next year he was very surprised when I told him it was a DNA based dating app. He was like, I, I thought it would be something else, but okay, here's, you know, like <laughs> that's great. Houston is such a good town for like the angel network there. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's such a brilliant town. Um, yeah. so that's awesome. Um, next we have actually, it's a local, uh, female co-working called Sesh Co-working, Meredith, the co-founder asked, have you dealt with decision paralysis or fear of making the wrong choice? Um, oof. you know, I am, I will confess, like I'm obsessive, which I think that's a good quality. <laughs> you can start to like spin the wheel, but yeah. I actually had a great mentor very early on who said, um, Look, the only reason, the only way I'm ever going to be mad at you is if you sit and torture one decision. Mm -hmm. If you work for me and you sit and you spend all your time to make sure that decision is perfect, I will be mad at you. If you make 10 decisions, eight of them are complete disasters. You're still going to have two that were good and you're going to be ahead. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really what we have to tell ourselves when we sit with that kind of, oh God, this, oh no, oh no. You just got to go. Yeah. You've just got to go. And if you'll make 10 decisions, they will not all be perfect, but you will be way ahead of where you would be if you were torturing to get to perfection on one. Yeah. Well, I'd like to say only thing that's better than perfect is done. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's talk about femtech, my personal favorite category. So yeah. femtech, again, technology that improves women's health and wellness was Sprout Pharmaceuticals considered femtech? I, in retrospect, consider it femtech, but at the time, did you self-identify as that? No. I mean, I, I got to tell you, I, I teased that when I was an entrepreneur before there was Shark Tank, so it wasn't cool. And I was definitely in femtech before it. There was a, a great name for it, yeah. as it should be. It should be considered its own category. I think that we were such an outlier um, at that time. I mean, I'm over, I'm oversimplifying it, but if you really look in women's health um, from a, you know, pharmaceutical perspective, I feel like there hasn't been tons of innovation since the pill 
since the birth control pill, yep, we've had 1960s, this like, yep. huge, like wasteland in between. Um, so I'm so thrilled, though, that today we have a conversation around femtech that we appropriately give it its due, consider it its own category, and look at the stats for what the potential is um, from a market opportunity perspective. Mm-hmm. Extraordinary dollars. Yeah, I'll tell you my um, thought on wellness. So you know, we do talk about wellness. And we talk about wellness in the context often of, you know, physical wellness, mental wellness, sexual wellness Mm -hmm. is the third piece of that equation. And it will be an explosive category uh, over the next five years. And I'm delighted we had um, some, I I think we gave people a billion reasons why they should invest in femtech. That's what I'd like to tell all the investors who laughed me out of the room at the beginning. I like, I gave you a billion reasons why you better look at this opportunity. That's right. You know, and I mean, the reason I'm so passionate about is because there's like this social impact part, this like do good in the world. Women deserve better. You know, the clitoris, the anatomy of the clitoris wasn't discovered till 1998. Like things that just make me mad. Right. And, but then I look at the market and I look at the opportunity as an investor, um, like, wow, menopause, a lot of women have menopause. A lot of women are struggling. These are women with money and purchasing power and there's nothing for them to buy. I bet you if somebody makes a product for them, they're going to sell out, you know? And so I have my investor hat on also thinking like the potential here to make a lot of money is giant. So I love pairing up like my heart and my pocketbook, right? (laughs) Like you can do both, you know? I think people often think, you know, my investing in the pink ceiling is, you know, there's a um, give back. There's a pay it forward mm-hmm. perspective to it. Hey, guess what? It's also great business because you guys have blinders on and you're overlooking these opportunities. And I think if there's a seismic shift coming uh, from a femtech perspective, it's that, look, women, we all know the data on women controlling purchasing power. Yep. You can magnify that when it comes to healthcare yes. purchasing. Power. So yeah. women make, you know, almost 90% of healthcare decisions in their household. Yeah. They are the ones who get their partners to go to their doctor. They think about the children and their doctor. And I think really what's changing is they're taking ownership of their own healthcare and mm-hmm. advocating for a system that has overlooked them. And that means they will be in spades purchasing those things. I mean, but what menopause, we we're all de- going to deal with it. Like what in the hell? We don't talk about it. We don't have yeah. solutions. I mean, it, it's really like way overdue, but, but it's moment is here. Yeah. And I also like to say, so this on our podcast, I always end with this tagline of, you know, if you improve women's health and wellness, you improve everyone's health and wellness. Cause if the woman feels better, her partner feels better. Her kids are doing better. Her dogs are walked more often. Her yeah. job is doing better. The economy is doing better. If you're an employer and you employ women, you should care about their health because they, they're not feeling well and not doing as well, right? And so, oh, look at, we got questions. People are snapping. People yeah. all over the world are saying, preach, Cindy, preach. What do I think of the pharmaceutical industry at large? Okay, let's go. I love this. So um, I'll tell you what, it's, it's been such an interesting path for me because I, I have a lot of friends and maybe some of you who don't love the industry that I'm in. I tease that it's like one rung up the ladder from the tobacco companies. It might not even be one rung up uh, in terms of what we think about, but we all love to hate pharma in the light of day, but we love them in the dark of night when our children are sick or when we have a global pandemic Mm -hmm. and we are dependent on them for innovation. 
I have been in an industry that I adore for what it has the capacity to do to change lives. I don't love all their practices for how they get it done. But you know what? The only way you change that is from within. And I have a lot of friends who, who test me and say, why are you, why are you in this industry? And I say, who will change it? if not people from within. Mm -hmm. And so I think some of the practices you're talking about, you know, the drug pricing and all of those, I mean, I'm very proud when we got this product back, classical um, big pharma move when my company was acquired, they jacked up my price. We took it right back down as soon as we got it back. Mm -hmm. So you've got to have leaders in this space, um, you know, who lead in the way that we want to see for, to hold everybody basically accountable to that standard. You know, and we, we talk a lot on our podcast, there's some, you know, uh, guests that come on and they're like, you know, those, those OB gins, they only spend six minutes with you. And I'm like, maybe it's an institutional or systematic problem. Right. And so, and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not that they don't want to spend more time is that they can't spend more time. Right. And so I, I think of the same about pharma, like they may themselves make bad choices, but there's also choices in terms of like, um, charging certain prices based on, you know, systematic issues of patents only lasting 10 years and it took eight years to develop it. And, you know, like there are systematic issues that feed into it as well. We have to have an appreciation for how reliant we are on that innovation for the impact it can have, um, in our lives and just be, you know, outraged by the egregious examples, but, but appreciative of the bigger picture And it's really not in isolation, right? There isn't, you can't pick a convenient villain. You've got to start to think about insurers. You've got to start to think about, you know, the entire sort of supply chain that takes money out of the pocket every part along the way. And then you've got a more comprehensive view. I think it's a very mysterious industry um, to people who aren't in it. Um, So we, we consider it like the headline. Um, and I think that it's really behooves all of us to understand more about how it functions and really, you know, have a more, um, personal advocacy perspective in it. Yeah. Well, we have a few more questions about femtech. Um, what are areas of women's health and wellness that you think still need innovating? I heard you say the pill, right? We need to innovate the pill and contraceptive that way. What are other areas that you think could be improved? Oh, um, Wow you know, don't get me started on all of these different areas that are overlooked. I mean, I think there's wonderful opportunity in um, menopause. First of all, I'm obviously passionate about sexual medicine and, you know, sexuality has uh, desire, arousal, orgasm, pain. Um, You know, all of those areas deserve more study and and, uh, different, um, you know, solutions to those. I think IVF is an area that we finally come a little bit further. I think our um, you know, maternal care is appallingly behind. Yeah. Uh, if you look at even like postpartum depression uh, for the number of women that are going to suffer from it, but we don't actually prepare for that or have those conversations. I mean, don't get me started around uh, around all of these different, um, you know, below the belt, so to speak, issues that are stigmatized, shameful, or or just simply not discussed. Uh, there's real opportunity for, um you know, new, new products and solutions. You know, unfortunately that was a trick question because the answer (laughs) to what should needs to be innovated in femtech is everything. Everything. (laughs) Well, let's say it a different way. You know what we need to do? We need to actually have a PSA out there um, that everybody knows that guess how much of funding goes to women's health, women's health. Tell us, Cindy. 
four. Four percent of R and D dollars go to women's health because women are niche, right? Four. I mean, that was a joke, everybody. For I mean, truly, but but Brittany's so right because that's what you are served up in a pitch room. Yeah. When you go in with an opportunity, you're like, oh, a niche product. Oh, you know, you're thinking, okay, I'll take the product that affects 51 percent of the population. Like that sounds like a great commercial opportunity to me. So I do. I will say, um, f- the fact that four percent of of R and D dollars, research and development dollars, go to women's health should make all of us, male, female, whatever, um, just consider that the, just consider that stat for a second. I'll give you another one. 2% goes to prostate cancer alone. I'm about to fall off my stool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that we do need a lot of, we need a lot of, um, A lot of work on innovation. And like you said, I started naming every category, right? I really did. Yeah. Oh, I'd like it here. Yeah. I'd like it here. I'd like it here. I'd like it here. Yeah. I would just like, I'd like the pipeline to be robust here. Yeah. What do you think? This actually comes from John, uh, uh, editor at Sex Tech Magazine. What do you think it'll take for femtech to become mainstream? What do we need to do as an industry to make sure they're all getting innovated? Storytelling. Mm, tell us about that. I think that... Part of the reason it it doesn't it, it hasn't become mainstream is we don't tell these stories. We don't all know that stat, right? Yeah. Um, we don't necessarily understand these stories, and there is a lot. There's a long list of them in which there is not um, equal consideration given, uh, and that is like in the pipeline and the regulatory process, et cetera. I think the way that it becomes mainstream is when we start to talk about it. And then it becomes normalized in conversation. And I think the beauty of that is that we've got the science. And if we can have, if we can force an evidence-based conversation, we can lift all of these judgments and, you know, that people may not even be conscious of because it's so deeply woven in our societal narrative. So I will say you change it through storytelling with the backing of science and demand that fair consideration be given. Yeah, I love it. I'm a geneticist, so I'm always very data-driven. Show me the graph, show me the data. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. that was me at the beginning of, of, you know, um, the path with Sprout and Addy was I'm looking at brain scan imaging, study after study after study with the same conclusion and I'm going, like, is everyone else looking at what I'm looking at? Because, like, wh- what, what's happening? Yeah. And the fact that we're walking away when this was spectacular discovery, you know, said everything about how deeply held the societal narrative was. And I think the realization that when it comes to women's health, the path will be longer and the hurdles will be higher. Yeah. And we shouldn't stand for that. It's It's not that... I believe it's not that companies don't see opportunity. It's that the dirty little secret um, is that they know that the path will be longer and the hurdles will be higher. Mm-hmm. I'll give a parallel for me with Addy and Viagra, right? Viagra addresses men's most common sexual dysfunction. Um, they paved the way in that regard. Addy addresses women's most common sexual dysfunction. The prevalence of those populations is identical. Hmm. Took Viagra six months in the regulatory queue. It was rushed to approval because it met what was deemed such an important unmet medical need. Mm-hmm. It took six years. Wow. We had three times as many patients worth of data 
in our clinical trials. That that's I think what um, when we start scratching our head because those things don't add up and we start talking about those, it's really where we're going to see the change happen. Thank you, Cindy, for paving the way. Thank you. Thank you. Um, this question actually comes from a student at University of Houston, Medea. She's a current student and an aspiring entrepreneur, one of our favorite kinds of listeners. What do you, Cindy, recommend is the best way to tap into the femtech market and launch a business with no prior experience? Um, you're, you solve a problem. Solve a problem that you are experiencing for you know product that you want to see in this world that is not otherwise here, and then get in the room. And find your way into the room with, uh, you know, again, in co-working spaces and giving a shout out to our co-working uh, question earlier, find those people and it, it one connection will lead to the next. I mean, you just need to start with an idea, move it to some kind of product, right? If it's a product to some kind of prototype and you can find people in your community who are going to help you take those, um, those steps. I'm... Um, trying to, we got 10 minutes left and we had 80 questions submitted, right? And so um, I know a few people are fundraising. We have founders uh, attending. So I want to make sure we ask because you're an active investor. And so a lot of people are, they want to know you they want to know your secrets. What's going on inside Cindy's mind? So um, this comes from uh, Swarna of Nolius Technologies, really cool medical device um, in, in Houston. Other than business, other than the business itself, what are the top three criteria and entrepreneurs that help you determine if you're going to invest in them? Ooh, so um, I'm going to say uh, obsessed with their idea. Obsessed. Um, they are optimistic as hell, and they are incredibly resilient. Um, that those are, I guess, my top three uh, that I think would be the ingredients you have to have. Um, I will say from a pitch perspective, if somebody comes in and I think for people who are aspiring or, you know, on a new path in entrepreneurship, sometimes when you get into the room with a pitch, you like, you know, everything you want to tell them everything. And here's my advice. If you can organize your pitch. Ooh, and Brittany, I'll like Brittany's take on this. This is my take. If you can organize your pitch to ladder up to these three things and you walk out of the room and they have these takeaways, you are going to get a second date. So here's what they are. What are you uniquely trying to do? Why are you the person to do it? And what's in it for them if they go on the ride with you? Yeah. And if you can answer those questions before you get out of the room, again, you'll get the second date. You know, I'm always telling founders, you're, you are so excited about all the pieces of your business and that's excellent. I want right. you to be. I need you to leave some space for questions. I need you to leave an essence of curiosity. Make me want to have more talking with you, time with you. Make me want to, you know, don't give me everything on your slides. Give me a, give me a piece of it, you know, and then let me be like, like dating. You don't, you can't go on the first date and get a marriage proposal. That should not be the objective. Um, You go on the first date and you, you romance them enough to get the second. Second date. That's what you're going for. Yeah. This is not married at first sight on TLC yeah. <laughs> or whatever channel that's on, right? <laughs> this comes from uh, Mary at Prose. What behavior and habits do you attribute to your success? Uh, um, hmm. You know, I think that a long time ago, I made a decision that my work is my hobby. My hobby is my work. I love what I do. And I think all of that, you know, internal angst we can have about 
balance and everything else. Um, I feel balanced because I'm doing what rips the sheets off in the morning and I love to go do. Mm -hmm. Um, so I probably, that has helped me a lot. Optimism. I go back to that again. We've that's been a common theme, um, tonight, but you know, that really does, uh, make a difference, I think, in how you show up and the choices that you're going to make. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I, you know, it reminds me of like perseverance. I have a hypothesis that a lot of founders have PTSD just based on my own experience interacting with them, Um, not due to the startup, but due to whatever life experience they've been through. And I actually think it's very much correlated with success and entrepreneurship because um, if you have PTSD, it's likely you've been through a really intense thing and you're still here, you know? And so there's like this root of perseverance in you, you know, and you know, I'm someone who identifies as having PTSD and I see it as such a strength because I'm like, you think, I don't think this is hard. I've been through hard. Like I know what stress is like, I know what, you know, uncertainty and fear is like this, I got, I could do this, you know? And so I actually think it's a, it's a strength to have that optimism and perseverance. Mm -hmm. I love that. Um, Oh, this is a, this is an interesting one. It's from Anna. She works at Domestic Violence Intervention Services. Thank you, Anna, by the way, for, for what you do. Um, what is something that you have found about being a female founder that is surprisingly rewarding? Oh, I love this question. Um, the rewarding part is who's going to come and walk alongside you. Mm. That's the best part uh, for me. I think that... Um, you know, we talked about it being lonely. And I think that some of my choices along the way have been pretty unconventional uh, in terms of taking on the government. And um, and it's really the road less traveled. And I think that the delight in that, and that's true for female founders, because look, let's look at the numbers. You're outnumbered. Uh, there are as many, you know, by all of those, you're not getting the same access to capital, et cetera. And I think that the beauty of it is how other women will come and walk alongside you. It's really the the fun of it. And that I feel so privileged that women have shared their story with me along the way. You know, I don't know. um, Maybe that was my my lucky break uh, that I was a female founder and CEO of that company. And they would share it with me, but they wouldn't had it been a male. Yeah. Do you find it difficult to hear so many emotional stories? Like, how are you able to tease that apart for having empathy and caring so much, but then staying focused and not like... I need my therapist for everyone's problems. They told me, about. <laughs> you know, I, I think they have been a gift of fueling me the injustice of it, that they deserve better. Um, and it's really held me accountable in a way because this was much bigger than me from the beginning. You know, as soon as I sat down and started listening to women's stories of losing marriages, of losing their sense of self, um, it was much bigger than me. And I got to, have that sort of on my shoulder that in those moments when I wanted to give up, I would be letting them down. Mm-hmm. And I would say, you know, on any sort of journey or you know path that you're on, um, having that bigger picture of the of the impact this will have well beyond you um, is a, is important. Yeah. Important perspective to keep you to keep you um, going the right way uh, when you want to give up. Yeah. Yeah. 
Our last two questions actually come from two of our interns at Femtech Focus. They are superstar interns. If anyone's hiring, I have two ladies in particular that are just incredible. Um, Sue has a question. Um, What piece of advice would you give a younger version of yourself? Oh, well, have more sex, of course. (laughs) (laughs) So... You know what my background is. I mean, that's true. No, the piece of advice, uh, I would give that piece of advice, but I'm also going to give one more. Um, and, uh, and it is the only regret you will have is that you didn't do it sooner. So if it's gnawing at you, if that little voice in your head, if you want to get started on something, go yeah. do it. You will only regret that you waited. Yeah. Sue, have more safe sex. Start that business. <laughs> I don't know her that well, but I think she'll, she'll think that's great. Um, and then Mariana, our other intern, um, what's a long-term goal? What is your long-term goal that you're trying to achieve through empowering women? How do you see us being in 20 years? Ooh, I see power right in our hands. Mm. And um, I love that. You know, I think we've had a conversation for a long time about women needing a voice. What women need is power. And you know what? Money is some of that power. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, when I when you say when Brittany read that one of my ambitions is to make women really rich, um, you know, that gets a certain response when I say that. I don't know why we can't say that you can do good, you can make money. And in fact, that currency allows you to sit on the side of the table and make decisions about the things that you want to see in this world. Yep, and your dollar. Deserve that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really, so the impact is not only, you know, helping women get there faster than I got there myself, helping them get to outcomes much bigger than mine, but most importantly, the multiplier effect of what that can create. Because if I can get them there, then they can get the next there and the next there and the next there. And suddenly there's a strength and a complete disruption of who we think has the next billion dollar idea. Thank you for listening to my interview with Cindy Eckert. You can learn more about Cindy and apply for investment from her family office at thepinkceiling.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Femtech Focus newsletter, join our virtual community, and follow us on social media. Share the show with a friend and continue to advocate for women's health innovation because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.